Hey, podcast listeners, Patrick here. Tickets for BroadwayCon 2017, presented by Mischief Management and Playbill, are now on sale. BroadwayCon's latest news is that we've added Tony nominee Melissa Errico, Tony Award-winning playwright David Henry Huang, best-selling author Tim Federley, and actor Eric Anderson to the roster of guests. Tickets and all information is available at BroadwayCon.com. I know a place where you belong. Come follow me and join the song. Welcome to BroadwayCon! The podcast, the show for the theater kid in all of us. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. So I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, just a little, but when today's guest, the Tony-nominated and Emmy-winning scenic designer, David Corns, walked into the room for our interview, I just, like, immediately exclaimed, oh my god, you are so handsome. Not my most professional moment. Not that I'm known for my overwhelming professionalism, but David humored me and was extremely good-natured about it. Anyway, David Corns is the brilliant scenic designer behind some of my favorite shows like Passing Strange, Bring It On, Hamilton, of course, and the upcoming Dear Evan Hansen. And he was the scenic designer for Grease Live, for which he just won an Emmy Award. Scenic design, you guys. It's one of those things we all appreciate, but most of us don't have any idea how that all gets put together. So I loved getting to talk to David and finding out. Our interview with David ends with a live question from a fabulous superfan, and then our episode will end with a little piece of an interview I recently did with Tommy Kale, the Tony-winning director of Hamilton and the Emmy-winning director of Grease Live. So, okay, here we go. Episode 5. Hi, David Corrins. Hi, we're doing this? Yeah, we're doing it. Is it Corns? Corns. Corns. Because I didn't want it to sound like I said corns. My father was a podiatrist, so can you imagine? I corns, can. corns. <laughs> Welcome to BroadwayCon the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, thanks for having me. We're really obsessed with your work here at the BroadwayCon podcast. Well, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's get That's into so it. exciting. First of all, I want to know, you're a scenic designer mostly, right? Yeah. What Can you just, for the people, explain exactly what that job entails? Um, well, when I started doing the job, I explained it to my mother by saying, if you take the theater and you rip the ceiling off of the theater and you dump it upside down and shake it and everything falls out, everything that falls out that's not an actor is what I make. <laughs> that's my, that's my description. So it's kind of, I kind of create the environment or the world of the show and then the lighting designer reveals it. Okay. How, How's no, that? So when you look, like when actors look back. The, you know, on their childhoods or whatever, they'll be like, oh, I took acting lessons, I took voice, whatever. When you were growing up and shaping your sort of like artistic worldview, what what can you say now that you did then that sort of informed what you would become with with your career? Um, well, uh, I, I have two older sisters and we each got our own bedroom and our own set of bedroom furniture. And my parents allowed us to rearrange the furniture in any which way we wanted. So we could have that set of furniture and all those props, if you will, and dressing. But um, I would rearrange my furniture every six or eight months. And I think that that's sort of my earliest childhood memory of this production design, set design world. I mean, I've since done a whole lot of things that I can kind of look back on. But that, I think, is the earliest one where I would just change the ground plan, if you will. That's so interesting. Not to ask an overly obtuse, like, artistic question, but when when you're part of a creative team, what is it? 
like to state the obvious is what you know kind of like you create the atmosphere but what is your driving hope to contribute artistically like how what is your part of telling the story well i think it's tricky because designers have the ability to make really cool things really cool things and i always try and i'm really proud of the fact that i buck against making the cool choice as often as i possibly can and i think the job of a designer when we're doing our jobs the best we can is to serve the story the best possible way we can. So, um, you know, I read a show or I listen to a show or I talk to my collaborators and I do a lot of things that are not theater. I do hospitality and restaurants and clubs and experiences and all sorts of things, but it's really all the same. You talk to your collaborator in the case of theater, it's a director and a writer and you really try and figure out what the thing is that they want the audience to feel when they're watching the show. And you kind of work, it's, ve- it's a very psychological job. You kind of work from the inside out. Whose space is it? When did they get the space? How did they react to it? You know, who decorated the space if it's a realistic place? And you kind of work from the inside out and you give as many details of the life of the space or the person in that space as you can. And you just help try and support the narrative of the show. And um, some of those things are incredibly obvious, like in the case of Hamilton, those turntables or that right. big, huge space. And some of them are very, very, very subtle, like tiny little details, the dust in the corner of a room that maybe no one would ever see except for the performer. And I like to, you know, in a realistic space, I like to have a conversation with myself and my collaborators like, when was this building built? Who built it? What was its original purpose of the room? How many decades has the person been living there? Were they the original tenant or did they come in 50 years after the fact? It was originally a working factory and then someone bought the loft and they ripped down the wall. And maybe you see one tiny little detail of what it used to be as a working factory. And then you keep adding layers and layers and layers of dramaturgy and history so that the audience feels that. And it kind of all compounds and adds up to a holistic experience for the audience. So I go back to talking to my collaborators and I say, what is it that you want the people to feel? And sometimes they say things like scared or contemplative or happy or invested in this person's story and not that person's story. And then we use all the different details that we have at our disposal, like color, line, texture, scale, architecture, proportion, etc., to do that, to support the narrative. I've always found it fascinating because playwrights write these things called scene, uh, you know, descriptions. And it's like early morning, kitchen, the sun breaking through the window, a chair and a table or whatever the thing is. And then when I talk to the playwrights and say, tell me about the space more than these, you know, space descriptions. It turns out they're writing about their mother's kitchen or their aunt's kitchen or the grandparents' house that they were visited one time or whatever the thing is. You really kind of dig down psychologically into the space that they were thinking about. Sometimes they say, I have no idea. Wow, that thing you made was so magical. But oftentimes, somewhere deep in their mind, they know what they're talking about or they've experienced it once. And if you kind of act like a therapist, they say, oh, gosh, I used to wait for the bus at my friend's house and it's their house that I'm writing about. Right. And so it unlocks so much about the character oh my god that is so interesting this just popped into my head when you you said something about this might be a weird question but have you ever created a piece of the set specifically for the actor and not for the audience like to inform their performance many 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 times can you give an example well so i was an intern at williamstown theater festival in 1997 and this great designer hugh landwehr um it was right the audience was walking into the theater for the first performance 
and we were still on set painting and hanging wallpaper and doing all sorts of things behind a show curtain. And I was in a room off stage, um, in like an ante room of the main set room. And he said, will you please put a label on the phone that says to the office, but the phone only faced upstage. So only the actor would ever see it in a, basically a masking room. And I thought to myself, this is the level of detail is so specific and heightened and perfect. And it's just there for the actor. Yeah. It's just there for the actor. And, you know, cut to 15 years later, I was designing a show at Manhattan theater club. Uh, Joe Montella was directing was an Adam Bach play called the receptionist. And, the title character was Jane Howdyshell. Oh she played God. the receptionist. And we spent hours and hours and hours. I dressed her island, you know, the desk and filing cabinet area that she played the entire play from. I dressed it all first. Then she took the stage. And we spent hours going through what would be in that corner and all those things. And I all those details and making lists and notes and little tiny you know, messages to herself and other things. And this person would have put that in and her fake daughter in the show would have given her this one day on a Tuesday and it would have been still there on a Thursday and, you know, layering and layering and layering. And I love doing that. I mean, the thing about being a designer is we take a shot at the bullseye early, way early because you have to build it and prop it and buy all this stuff and accumulate it all. And then first rehearsal happens. And I always find like it's a little backward. Um, I conceive of the whole space and basically execute it and then we cast the show and we get the actors and so on the first day of rehearsal when we show the model and the designs to everyone I always say to the person in particular the people whose space it is supposed to be um, I can't wait to work with you and collaborate with you and please take this as a first a rough draft and I can't wait to really make this thing a nuanced home for you Wow. Um, Because in the end, by the end of the trajectory of the show, they've spent way more time with it and have developed the character so much more than I ever could. But perhaps the biggest and best compliment I've ever gotten in my professional life is from actors who have said, I don't have to do any character development when I walk on your set. I know exactly who I am. Yeah. You know, because all those details are accounted for. And it's really a very interesting craft so fascinating can we talk about a few shows in particular no (laughs) i've gotta gotta go well it was really nice meeting you thank thank you you. for doing this um can we talk about grease live can we start there absolutely i better shape up because you need me who can keep me satisfied has to be very different doing television versus theater yeah right I mean can you talk about that a little bit you know like did you know right away that this was something you'd be good at or did you just want to like throw yourself into it and see what happened well I've actually done a lot of TV and also weirdly in different disciplines of television so I've done reality shows Uh which there's nothing really reality (laughs) about reality shows Um, and I've done scripted and I've done unscripted and I've done award shows and a lot of different things the thing that I think was most applicable to Design and Grease Live was this project that I actually did that never happened. It was this thing called Broadway 4D, which was huh. this $75 million behemoth of a project that was 16 of the most famous musical theater numbers of all time being filmed intentionally, it, theatrical experiences being filmed intentionally to be shot in 3D and then shown in a movie theater experience. And I spent... 
two years of my life thinking about how to create theater scenery to be filmed, which is different than right. filming theater. And it's certainly different than making a movie of a theatrical show. Yeah. Um, so when Tommy came to me to do the show, I really didn't know if I wanted to do Grease Live. I wasn't really sure what I had to add to it. I wasn't really sure what the genre and the medium was. Um, and then I remembered, not remember, but then I kind of hearkened back to all the work that I had done on this Broadway 4D experience. And I was very, very excited because it is a true mashup of the two forms. And I think it's important when we talk about these live theatrical experiences, they are not television shows. They are theatrical shows that is an A performing B for C, meaning there's a live audience. I believe they need to have live audiences mm -hmm. because if not, it's tinny and dead because theater by definition is A performing B for C. And then you get to use all the amazing th storytelling conventions of theater. What we do better than anything is, you know, showing a vista scene changes, mm -hmm. doing things like that, yeah. which I think are so unbelievably satisfying. Everything in theater is scaled to a six foot person. So if you're watching Hamilton and you're really bored of the show, which probably doesn't happen, <laughs> but if you're really bored, you can look away from the performer because there is no editing equipment. There is no, I can zoom right. in on your face. It's all still always to a six foot human being. So you can like look around the set and say, oh look, David Corns put a shovel over there. <laughs> right. And the thing that's amazing about film and TV is that there are editing equipment, they are called the editor and the director of photography and the director and the camera, and they can zoom in and make your face like 25 feet tall or the size of the entire screen. And so your beautiful, amazing, nuanced production design becomes three leafy shapes in the background. Yep. But what film can do and television can do is, is break open the back wall of a room and we can go out onto the lot at Warner Brothers, right. which you can never do in a Broadway theater, no <laughs> right. matter how imaginative and how much money you have. No matter you can how, never how, do how much that. a genius you are, Tommy Kale, you can't do that. No, but the genius of Tommy Kale can can find his way into directing an art form that takes the best of theater and the best of film and mash it up. Right. Because the way you do a transition in film is a jump cut or a dissolve or something like that. And the way that you do it in theater is by having a wall break open or fly or something like that. And when I was able to apply all the two years of work of that Broadway 4D project into the Grease Live application. Then it became incredibly exciting. And then Fox Paramount and Mark Platt, our executive producer, did a really smart thing, which is hire Tommy and I without anyone else to sit down with an illustrator, um, this guy, Javier Amajeres, who is amazing. And we sat down and I got to draw with Javier for six weeks just to conceptualize the show. Wow. We just sat down with no rules. We didn't know if we were in New York or Los Angeles or anything, inside, outside, no rules, and we just drew. And we, by the end of it, had conceptualized theatrically and cinematically 16 of the 18 numbers. So when we presented to Fox, Paramount, and Mark Platt, we sort of dropped the mic, like, here's what we think we want to do, and they loved it. And what's interesting and different than our experience that was previous to that, which was Hamilton, in Hamilton, we were all kind of working in lockstep in uh, service of this work of genius that Lynn had created. But with Grease Live, we took one of the most often produced American musicals, and the only thing that really changed was the presentation and the production design and the conceptualization of it. And it was so exciting to, like, give those guys this document of all these sketches and storyboards. And they freaked out. They were so excited. They greenlit the project. 
And we got this incredibly excited phone call from Mark Platt saying, now I get it. I'm totally excited. Yes, I can't wait to do this with you guys in this exact same way. And what was so cool about it was we had a due north. From that point on, we had a Rosetta Stone. This was our you know, production Bible. And we just had eight months to basically manifest into reality the thing that Tommy and I took six weeks to create. Can we talk about Hamilton? No. <laughs> you hate talking about Hamilton. I keep walking away and keep coming back. Yes. But wait, come back. Let's talk about done. Hamilton. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. So Hamilton, so you have this set, but then you also have these turntables, mm -hmm. which is an incredible like technical element. And how you married the art of the set versus the technology of the turntable, if that question makes any sense. It does, although when I think about the Hamilton set, one of the things I'm really proud of, because running costs of Broadway shows are so expensive, the running costs of Hamilton are almost nothing. Really? Because we only have really three things that happen with technological help two turntables and the lanterns fly in right. everything else you know and the walls fly in a little bit but the the running costs are so little because it's such a technologically easy show and that shows barely scraping by so i know thank God well when that. it when it really dips down in yeah. those weeks <laughs> it will be helped by this by these um low weeklies and i and actually when you build a show it's something you really it's not about the initial investment it's about what the overall running costs are um, so it's funny because I don't think of the turntables as so technologically advanced. It's a, it's a trick that we've been using in stagecraft for years. They're not that complicated of an idea. Nothing has to deploy and triple uh -huh. in size and, you know, <laughs> store into the size of a thimble, which we've been asked to do in the past. So getting back to your first question, which is how I can marry the surround with the turntable, you know, when you create an environment for a show, you have to really look at what the story that the creative team and the creators are trying to say. And the thing about Hamilton is there are 51 numbers, 24,000 plus words, the need to move seamlessly from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, render all these locations somehow realistically, but you could never render them realistically given mm -hmm. that we're on the battlefield and in Washington's office and right. many, many other places. Um, but really the story we're telling is about the people who created the scaffolding from which the country was built. And so the big theatrical metaphor that we did was to do that. We did not create the foundation, quote unquote, of, uh -huh. the, of the country, but we created the scaffolding that, is that they so built. That is so interesting. And so a lot of what we were playing with was imagery of things that are in the process of being built. That's why we have that big wooden structure. And we have that half-built wall in front of another wall mm -hmm. to show a kind of tapestry of early American architecture getting put together. And the turntable was, Tommy made me interview for the job, as he should. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I said to him a couple of years before it happened, I'd like to, when you come, when it comes time to interview for designers, I'd like to throw my hat into the ring. And um, he heard me. And then we, I had worked with Lynn before. I had worked with Alex Lackamore many, many times, Andy many, many times, and Tommy many, many times. It was just, I was the only person on the creative team um, of Hamilton that did not do In the Heights. Um, but in that interview, I said to him, I think there's a cyclical swirling uh, motion of the show. I can't tell you why. And I think, you know, and I've said this a lot recently, I think it has to do with somehow this hurricane that washes Hamilton off of Nevis and this cyclical relationship between he and Aaron Burr. 
and this political storm that he gets himself into. But I also think really I was attaching myself to the monuments of Washington and the Capitol Dome and these yeah. operating theaters, you know, where we get to be complicit in and also watch the action of whatever they are, the rap battles. Um, and in the interview, Tommy was like, yeah, put a pin in that, you know, settle down, Corins. Um, and it was very, very late in the design process. In fact, we were fully designed and about to go into rehearsal. And my associate, Rod Lemon, who has been my associate for 17 years, um, said, how are we going to get furniture on stage? How are we going to do these 10 moments? And what about that turntable idea that you had like a long, long time ago? Oh, the turntable was, uh, wow. And I had Andy and Tommy, Andy Blankenbuehler and Tommy in my office. And I said, so I want to bring this up one more time. You're about to do a show with an upper level all the way around, but no chance for elevation in the middle of the stage. And how do we get all this on and off? And Andy, as you can tell from seeing the show, you know, thinks about, movement from a totally storytelling perspective but also moment to moment to moment to Mm -hmm. moment and we started scratching our heads and they said if you can show us 10 moments in the show where you would use the turntable we'll think about it and so i sat down and sketched out the duel i sketched i sketched out that moment that we call the aaron sorkin walk and talk which is when (laughs) which is when aaron burr meets the skylar sisters in the beginning yeah and all these moments and i handed them over this thing this piece of paper and they said okay and we added the double turntable back in um and you know i gave them like tiny building blocks or Lincoln logs and they are really smart guys. And they had neither of them had ever done a show at the turntable. And they took that idea and they made a rocket ship. Yeah. You know, I gave them this thing and I was expecting a log cabin and they came back with like, what do you think about this? And I was like, Oh, that's a really good, (laughs) we should do that. We don't have too much more time. I wanted to end by talking about dear Evan Hansen. Okay, cool. A show that I just like never, I will never cry so hard ever again in my whole entire life until December 5th when we open on Broadway. Exactly. (laughs) Plug, plug, plug. (laughs) Exactly. Well, but it's so different because that set is so highly technical and, and um, what are the kids, what would the kids call it? Like it's technological, you know? Yeah, I think it's um, technologically immersive. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, w- really, what's cool about that design or that show is, and I'm proud of, we really wanted to give you a sense of isolation. This is about a kid, and all the characters are having one moment in their mind and or one idea and relationship in their mind, and then everyone else, and they're having totally different moments and relationships out- outwardly than they are inwardly. And so these little tectonic plates floating around the space of realism, again, floating in a pretty abstract world. But what I think is cool that we do in that show that I've never really seen done before is we show you the internet, Mm -hmm. what the feeling of experiencing the internet, as we all do every night and troll the internet and we go to Google and then we go to Facebook and then we do this and we do that. If you were to do a stop motion of what it felt like to experience the internet over three or four hours. We do that at least twice in the show, and we show the internet once for good yeah. and once for evil. Yep. How something can go viral in a bad way, and how something can go, you know, you can uh, fund a Kickstarter campaign or something right. for a good way. And, but we really do successfully kind of show you what happens to your mind when you're immersed in these 
tropes and these iconography of the internet of this iconography of the internet and it's pretty cool it really is incredible okay so for the final so so broadway con the podcast which is what you're on right now broadway con is all about the fan and the fan interacting with the artist and so we brought in our friend sierra Hi, from sierra. broadway con who is a david corns super fan oh my god i got a text at intermission um from at hamilton the other night she's like i he's just so amazing and sierra is so amazing so we're gonna let her take us out with a question or two for you if you don't mind oh my god cool ready? here we go all right, so we were just talking about Dear Evan Hansen, and I wanted to ask you specifically about sets, um, about shows moving. Transferring a set into a new theater, about making it work in a new space, I'm sure that it affects how quickly things move, but you want to maintain the same feel, and does it even fit in the space? Um, yes. It's, uh, well, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of shows move from different venues, including Hamilton, which moved, the Hamiltons moved uptown from, <laughs> see what I did there, uh, from the public to Broadway. But Dear Evan Hansen, it's tricky because that show is an incredibly intimate show. It's not a huge dance show. It's an emotional show. And it's a really about a very small nuclear family. Um, and so a lot of it, it's, I mean, technically it's about sight lines and throw distances. Sight lines meaning how the, um, the audience can relate and what they can see to the action on stage. Um, that show has a little cathartic secret at the end that we reveal, and I'm not going to talk about now, but if you come see oh. it on December 5th, you'll see. <laughs> but it's a really, it's a beautiful kind of cathartic moment that happens at the end of the show. That obviously has to do with space in other parts of the, you know, offstage space. Um, so that t that's taken into consideration. Really, the actor-audience relationship is the one big thing you always try and think about. So with Hamilton, it actually got a little bit smaller when we went up uptown. Um, but the volume of the Broadway theater felt so much bigger. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, we started at the arena stage, and then it, we kind of jammed 15 pounds of stuff into a 10-pound bag to get to second stage, and now we're bringing back that 15-pound bag for Broadway. So it's kind of a contract-expand exercise. Um, but really what you try and do is recreate the feeling. Awesome. Is that it? Can I ask you also, so I think it's easy when you are not here, when you're not in this community, to think about the designer who designs the thing. But you've talked about your associates. I know you have like a support. Can you talk about the people who work with you and what they do? Sure. Well, I have, um, I have, a, like a, I have a design company um, because I do a whole bunch of other things that are not just theater. And in different disciplines, you need different kinds of people. Um, but specifically for theater, I work with three main associates, and there's basically one associate assigned to each one of the projects. So Hamilton was Rod Lemon. Um, Dear Evan Hansen is Amanda Stevens. Both of them have been with me for, I mean, Rod has been with me for almost 18 years, and Amanda's been with me for 10 years. So there's an incredible amount of continuity, which I think in the way that I was talking to you about Tommy and having that shorthand, it's doubled with those guys. Uh, and then we have a group of people in the studio that then take some of the work. The shows are so technical. So once it's designed and the associate and I have kind of roughed out a plan, we have people who help put the drafting package together. In other words, the architectural drawings that the shop can bid and then build from. And then there's also scene breakdowns and lists of props and dressing and furniture. And then we have a model making team who are able to take those plans and put them into quarter inch scale or a half inch scale and be able to use that model as a visual tool. So there's a lot of hands that touch it before it leaves the office. Once it leaves the office and we have, you know, the team expands outside of my personal team there are obviously scene shops and then the and then the people who load it in and then run the show every single day to make it work eight times a week but um 
once we get into the theater, it's really myself and one associate that go and kind of put the thing in and install it and oversee tech rehearsal. David Gorins, what an amazing, what a, what a fascinating conversation we just had. Will you come back and talk to us more? Because Absolutely. we don't have time right now to talk about Bring It On and oh Annie and all of these other amazing, oh, and I really do want to talk to you someday about Magic Bird because Tommy and I had a really great talk about that and I saw it and I really enjoyed it. I would it. love to talk to you about that. Yeah. Oh, and Lombardi, of course. So will you come back and talk to us more? Definitely. Okay, you're incredible. Okay. Thanks, Bye. David Gorins. Okay, bye. So weirdly, but like awesomely, I got to interview David Corns and Hamilton and Grease Live director Tommy Kale in the same week. Just a fluke of scheduling. I got to talk to Tommy about what I think is one of the masterpieces of David's Hamilton set, the turntables. I specifically wanted to talk to Tommy about one of the uses of the turntables, that moment being the song Satisfied, which at the time of the interview was being brilliantly performed eight times a week by Renee Elise Goldsberry. That moment in Hamilton, I think, is truly one of the greatest pieces of storytelling I've ever seen on stage. Here's what Tommy had to say about it. Can you talk a little bit about creating that moment, that 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 piece of the show with her? Absolutely. And you know, and Andy Blankenbuehler is, you know, the you know, is the wizard that we all know that he is and you know, in that sequence is really a testament to that wizardry. Um, Hufflepuff, if you're, if you're wondering. <laughs> Hufflepuff. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah, not what I would have guessed. Well, you know, he's he's definitely not Gryffindor. And like really? Ravenclaw, be a, have you met Blankenbuehler? I haven't. There might be like a little Slytherin. Who are we kidding? <laughs> um, but you know that that's it started very innocently, right? The only thing that existed initially was a song called "Helpless," and the only line that Angelica had in the whole show was, "I'm just saying, if you really loved him, you would love him. You would love me. You would share him." Um, and that was it. Like there was, I think that's the line. Um, and yeah. and we thought, but there's there was this incredibly dynamic love triangle we wanted to explore, and we were trying to figure out how Angelica could be could be a presence. And so Lynn and I were talking. This was early days, um, and you know, 2012, I mean, this was, you know, pretty early. We were just kind of kicking the tires on stuff, I would think. And, and we started talking about the duel and the final duel and slowing down time and thinking about what time was going to be. And we didn't know if we wanted to have three duels, but we knew we needed to set up the rules, what became 10 Duel Commandments, which was, you know, this marvelous idea that Lynn had to do that and to do it in that form. But we also thought, you know, that, that night they met, what was it like for Angelica? And like all of a sudden, like, Lynn was just like off and running and then, you know, brought in this thing that was this story that we had seen told from a different point of view. So this Rashomon idea also then played really deeply into this, this notion of who tells your story. Mm-hmm. So it is about perspective. It is about historiography. It's about who's, who remains to say what happened. And so we watched this thing unfold in real time with, with Eliza in the center. And then we see that same story. And that idea was so clear in the writing. These are two numbers that I don't remember changing that much lyrically or musically. Like they were pretty close when they came out of, you know, Lynn's head. And obviously some songs come out fully formed and it's like, that's it. And some Mm -hmm. things, you know, my my memory of these at least is that they were really pretty close to the thing that we ended up doing, especially once we kind of settled on that format. And what it ended up becoming was very similar to, I I think what happens, and this is with all respect, um, and we are a... We are standing on the shoulders and not this, but at the ballet in Chorus Line, mm-hmm. where you think it's going to be. I remember Sondheim said this. You think it's going to be he goes, she goes, he goes, and then all of a sudden three people step out, 
and everything that you thought the show was going to follow in terms of its structure gets exploded. Wow. And so in those very early conversations with, with Andy about what this could be, that's what we knew. We needed to stop time. We needed to shift perspective. And Andy just sort of started going into the lab and dreaming and thinking and showing us stuff. And, you know, there's a, there's a mathematical quality to how that number gets built. And if you do the job well, and our company does the job very well, yeah. all that goes away. And, and ultimately, the thing that I think was at the core of, of that idea, it being in between two sisters and Lynn, who has a, you know, Lynn has an older sister is very important to him. Um, you know, and so in those early conversations, by the way, as does Alex, um, and, you know, and, and Andy, someone who really, you know, has family and, and the relationships with siblings are so important. It felt like it could be a love story between two sisters. That's something you don't see. I mean, that's right. actually the truest love story on stage, the most uncorrupted love story in our show is these two women. And that was very powerful for us to try to represent. And the way that Renee realizes that every night, and I just was at the matinee today, um, you know, however many shows into it she is, you know, and, and it feels like it is happening to her. Yeah. And, uh, and she's remarkable, and she is deserving of all of the things oh, you know, God, that, 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 are, that are coming her way. Um, because there's no difference in her approach. 600 shows in, there, there was when we were just working on that in the rehearsal room. And, um, and, and that song is it's a gift. It's a gift that Lynn gave us that we tried to honor. So this is what it feels like to match wit with someone at your level. What the hell is the catch? It's the feeling of freedom of seeing the light. It's Ben Franklin with the key and a kite. You see it, right? The conversation lasted two minutes, maybe three minutes. Everything we said in total was three minutes. In three minutes, a bit of a dance. A bit of a posture, it's a bit of a stance. He's a bit of a flirt, but I'ma give it a chance. I asked about his family. Did you see his answer? His hands started fidgeting. He looked askance. He's penniless. He's flying by the seat of his pants. BroadwayCon the podcast is a co-production between BroadwayCon Media and Theater Podcast Productions. Episodes are produced and edited by me, Patrick Hines. If you'd like to hear more of my interview with Tommy Kale, you can check out my other podcast. It's called Theater People. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and any place else that podcasts live. Tickets for BroadwayCon 2017 are now on sale. You can get tickets and information at BroadwayCon.com. We'll be back next week with Tony-winning actress Lena Hall and Tony-winning composer Janine Tesori. Until then, we ask you to remember this. If you get really pissed and will cut someone slack When they call the cast album a freaking soundtrack You're a fan, you're fantastic, you're part of the crew